Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning, Jubilee. And especially to those who were in the early service and are back again, because it was so wonderful, they had to remain behind for the second helping of the same message, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it's great to be here. I've been assigned a topic, and assigned topics are... Uh, well, it's like this. You don't have to worry about what you're supposed to speak on. But at the same token, you have to speak on what you're assigned. <laughs> it depends on the assignment. So this is the Christmas season, and I have been assigned uh, having joy in the midst of isolation. Are you thrilled about that? <laughs> it's something you've always wanted to hear about, isn't it? Well, you'll be happy. I promise. I promise. <sighs> You know, all of us know what it is to experience being closed in and isolated. Um, sometimes others have made us feel that way. Other times, we've actually been our own worst enemy and withdrawn and isolated ourselves. We all know what, we were disappointed at people or we've been hurt in relationships and I'm never going to do that again or I'm never going to trust that person again. You all know all about that. I'm just going to bring you two points here today, and one has to do with that uh, there's isolation that takes place with where, which we withdraw in our own little world uh, because we're involved in a situation of which we have no control over. So, I mean, COVID is fresh on our minds when people had to isolate at home and you couldn't go out, and you couldn't mix with family or friends or and if someone in your family had COVID, you couldn't go see them in the hospital. And you, so that's, that's a form of isolation that you have no control over. And there are other situations where we have isolated ourselves because we've been disappointed or had various kind of hurts or whatever. So we've withdrawn ourselves. So I, I want to talk about those two kinds. And, and the first one I talked about is isolation not of our own choosing and how joy comes can come even in the midst of that, regardless of how difficult it might be. Several years ago, when we first started Jubilee Church, there was a, a pastor and his wife that uh, pastored a church, and the wife got a diagnosis of terminal cancer. And he resigned his church, and he came to us, actually, at Jubilee. He wanted to be in a caring, loving community, even though we were quite small at that time. And... Uh, joined in with us so that he could look after his kids and kind of look after his wife without carrying the responsibility of leading that church. And uh, his name was Jeff and his wife's name was Faith. She was a blessing. She was incredible. Because going through this trial with all its difficulties and, and pain, with, the, with understanding she would ultimately leave her children and leave her husband, she was so joyful and faith-filled. I mean, what a testimony she was. She continued to bless Jubilee with her life of faith and joy 
And in this terrible circumstance, somehow it didn't steal her joy. She, she remained joyful. And near the end of her life, Jubilee members would go and often spend the night with her and see her through the night until she went to be with Jesus. But she never lost her confidence in God. And she demonstrated something, that regardless of the circumstances you go through, if your focus is right, if somehow you have your confidence in God and your identity in Him, you won't lose your joy. It doesn't matter what, what it is that you have to face. You see, Christian joy is unique because it's not based upon your circumstances at all. And that's what makes it different. In Romans 5.3, the apostle writes these words. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces some good stuff. Now, none of us want to go volunteer for suffering just to produce the good stuff. But just so you know, when we will all suffer something. And when we go through, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And then uh, Paul also writes in Romans 8, 18, these words. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. I mean, he had, he had a future look on this thing. He wasn't just focused on the sufferings. He was focused on what is being produced and where, where this is leading him. Now, don't get me wrong. Romans 5.3 doesn't say, oh, goody, goody, Lord, send me some sufferings. I want some more sufferings. Of course, no one would do that. But, but, but it doesn't say rejoice for your sufferings, but you can rejoice in the midst of them, is what he's saying. You can have joy in the midst of them. It's producing something, endurance and patience and character and, and hope. And the Apostle Paul demonstrates this in this fairly lengthy text that we looked at today. I don't want you to lose connection with that. When this text was written, Philippians 1, Paul is in prison, and it was not a cushy one either. I mean, cold stone floors and all of that, and chained next to a, a guard. Uh, and, and Paul's writing these comments in Philippians 1 while he's in the midst of isolation that was not of his own choosing. He comments about his imprisonment, and he says, Hey, my imprisonment was for the cause of Christ. Somehow, that's going to bring him some joy. It wasn't, my imprisonment is because I stole a car. I stole a chariot and got caught. I said, I'm give it. <laughs> it wasn't that. It was for the cause of Christ. And outwardly, his circumstances were, were dire. They were deplorable, really. His environment was dismal, and his future life was in question. They could execute him at any moment. However, in the midst of all this, Paul had all this joy, somehow in the midst of this deplorable, dire circumstance. Nothing could rob his joy. He was filled with confidence in God, and a God who, who orchestrates all things for his good and the good purposes of his will. In, in this text that was read, uh, read this morning, let me just refer to verse 12, 13, 14. We might throw it up there. It's a miracle, isn't it, how that happens? Thank you, Jesus. 
I'm going to recommend we double you guys' salary unless you mess up, okay? So I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest, all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. That's why I'm here. They know that. Well, he's telling them that's why they know. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord for my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's full of faith here and joy and optimism. Now, the prison guard, the palace guard, the praetorium guard, they were actually Caesar's special guard. These were like the creme de la creme, well-trained guys, about 2,000 of them. They were protectors of Caesar, and they were given the job of guarding Paul. And uh, he wrote to the Philippians while he was being guarded by them. And the chain, he was chained next to a guard, and the chains were only about 18 inches long, so he had no privacy whatsoever. And, of course, he had a captive audience. Guess what Paul did? Overflowing with the joy of Jesus, he told them about Jesus. And ultimately, in the two years that he was there, in these dire circumstances, the whole Praetorian guard heard about Jesus, and many of them got saved. I love it. And instead of seeing this, this lockup as an inconvenience, instead of complaining, saying, God, why I've tried to serve you, I've done all this stuff, why do you let this happen to me? which would be normally what comes to our mind when we've tried to do the right thing and things don't turn out the way we'd like for them to. We say, well, I don't understand. You know, he's such a good guy. You know, why does why bad things happen to, to good people? That, like, and I'm a good people. And why does bad things happen? And we, we, we could go, but he didn't do that. He saw these circumstances as an opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. Years ago, when we started the church at Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, it's, it's too long of a story, but it's beautiful. I'd like to tell it all to you someday. But uh, we, I felt in a prayer meeting that God said, go for this uh, building, we had a building, go for it. Write up a proposal, which would all be smoke and mirrors in a way, because we had no history and we were a small group and we had no money and we're looking for a 100% loan from a bank. How many of you know that's a big stretch? <laughs> and... Uh, he said, I will save the CEO that makes this loan and his entire household. Well, we started the journey presenting my, my projections. That's all they were. I had no history. Projections. And bankers laughed me out of the building. But this guy listened to me, and I felt he was the guy. We began to pray for him, pray for him. And ultimately, he made us this loan. And after all the papers were signed, then I asked, hey, Mike, why did you give us this money? Why did you he says, I don't know. But he says, I would like to get to know you. And I found out he liked to fish, and so I'd take him out fishing. And, and you know, when you own the boat and you're fishing and you're in the middle of the lake and it's a, and it's a difficult walk back to shore, he'd have to walk on water, folks. <laughs> Uh, I, I, had, I had what Paul had. I had a captive audience. And it was ultimately it was in that boat that he gave his life to Jesus. 
And I found out later first that this was his second family. He had a first family. and none of them, He had three daughters. None of them would talk to him. And remember, God would save him and his whole household. And then one day he got a phone call from his daughters and said, Dad, I've become a Christian and I want to have a relationship with you. And then the second daughter. And then the third daughter. And God saved him and his entire household. Okay. That's worth the glory. Hallelujah right there. I, you know. Well, this is Paul. And guards are being saved. And families are being saved. You see, he had a, a perspective that brings joy and increases joy. And it, it builds confidence. And it's Romans 8, 28. Let's see if we can have another miracle. Oh, thank you, Lord. It says, and we know, say we know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many things? You know what all is in the Greek? All. Yeah, it's all. There you go. You've heard this before. <laughs> all things work together for the good. All things. That's crazy. All things. The painful things. The difficult things. All things. Somehow, it, God has a plan for those who are called according to his purpose. That's you. Do you know this? You got to know it. You got to know it. Because if you really, really know it, you don't have any complaints. If you really, really know it. I don't understand what's going on here, God, but I know this. I'm going to hang on for this. Those who love God can know that God will weave everything in your experience, the negative, painful things, into something good, because God can only do it that way. That's the way he is. He can only work redemptively in your life. That's the way he is. And being in chains for two years uh, was not a loss of opportunity for Paul. And he wrote these letters, not a loss of, of freedom. He wrote, he wrote Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, he wrote Philippians, he, he wrote Philemon. He didn't sit there and moan. He was busy about it. He was overflowing with Joe, joy. He had to put it down on the paper. Parchment, parchment, yeah. Paper came later. But we only see the obvious sometimes. And the obvious doesn't look good. The, the obvious doesn't look good. I, one of the things that I'm a simple guy, and so simple things help me, was yeah, I, I've lived this way for a long time. Bad stuff happens. Bad, I mean stuff I don't like. That's painful, difficult, all that. Things that you wouldn't choose happen. And I would say, and I've said it to others many times, well, maybe it's just a in my book of life, maybe it's just a sentence, period. And the next sentence is, but God. Maybe it's just a paragraph in my life now, but that's not the last paragraph. The next paragraph is, but God. Or maybe it's a chapter. Let's hope it's a short chapter. But if it's a chapter, and the next chapter is, but God. That, before we get to the end, your present state, which seems like the end, because the only focus you might have sometimes, present, is not the end. I have a future hope. I believe that God has plans, a hope, and a future for all of you. Isn't that good news? Now, that's something to be joyful about. So Paul was able to have joy in his isolation because he maintained his confidence in God he maintained his focus on Jesus 
God is in control. He's working out a good purpose. The Romans 8.28 perspective can tell you how helpful that is. It enables joy when it appears your world is falling apart. And how many times I thought, God, I can't see any good thing coming out of this situation. And oftentimes way down the road, I thought, wow, look at that. I would have never, ever imagined that God could do that with that and that and that and we arrive at this place. You see, I have an advantage over most of you because I'm old enough that I've lived through enough decades where I can look back. I feel sorry for you young folks. <laughs> I got a history that I can look back and see when I thought that was the end of the line for me, it was the beginning of a new chapter. Because now I can, I'm living in the good of that. Wow. That changes everything. I tell you, the advantages of growing older, walk, walk, walking with Jesus, I wouldn't trade it to be a 25-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old or a 70-year-old. I wouldn't trade it. Okay. The second kind of isolation that comes, it comes by choice, and that's not a very good thing. And I'll use the example of Elijah. I really have admiration. He was, Elijah was a real dude. I mean, he was something. He faced down a wicked king. Now, you can get your head off of just spilling wine with a king, but let alone facing down a wicked king who was married to an even more wicked woman named Jezebel. And he lived by a brook without any food and God sent the ravens to feed him. And then he raised a widow's son to life. That's pretty big stuff. And he challenged the king, and his whole nation was in idolatry. They were serving Baal and Asherah. And, 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 and Elijah had enough of it. He said, okay, let's have a showdown and determine who the real God is in this country. All right? Let, that's like Tombstone. Meet me at the OK Corral. I'm ready to go. And it was called Mount Carmel. And this was the challenge. Bring the prophets of Baal and of Asherah and uh, the 450, 450, 450, 400, something like that of Asherah as well. And, and let's see who the real God is. What we'll do is we'll build two altars and we'll, we'll sacrifice a bull. We'll cut them up, put them on the altar. And we'll make our plea to God and the God that answers from heaven with fire and, and burns up the bull, that'll be the real God. And so the day of the contest started and the prophets of Baal are doing their chants, they're walking around the thing and running and running and running and shouting and screaming. They get louder and louder till they lose their voice. They go hour after hour after hour. Nothing happens. And Elijah makes fun of them. He says, hey, your God must be busy. What is he? He even got a little crude. He said, I bet he's out in the bushes relieving himself. He has a problem. He's got a... And that, uh, I'm surprised they didn't try to kill him right there. And then when it come his turn, he built a trench around the, his altar and poured in water all over, water after water after water. Water ran down and filled up the trench. And he made his cry to God. And the fire came down from heaven. Wow. And it burned up the bull. And it burned up the dust. It even burned up the rocks. And it licked up all the water. 
Now that's proof positive. Who is the real God, right? Now I think Elijah expected a revival as a result. He expected the whole nation to, to oust uh, Baal and to serve God, but it didn't happen. I think he expected the king and the queen, Ahab and Jezebel, to turn to God, but it didn't happen. Instead, here's what happened. Mino Jezebel said, I put a contract out on your life. You may make it 24 hours, I don't know, but you're dead meat. Now, this guy who's done all of this stuff, I didn't expect this from him. He got afraid and he ran. Can you believe that? He ran. And not only that, he was so depressed and discouraged, he prayed that he might die. That wasn't a real prayer, because she would have done that for him if it had just stayed there. She would have killed him. But he prayed that he might die. He left his friend. He isolated himself. He hiked 40 days across the desert. He, he hid in a cave and had the audacity to claim that he was the most righteous man, or the only righteous man that was left. He had some problems, didn't he? He's not able to cope. He's overwhelmed. He's disappointed and afraid. And he comes to that trackless wilderness of the soul that comes with disappointment that leads to isolation. When you have expectations of people, and more importantly, when you have expectations of God and he doesn't do what you wanted him to do. Now, here's the problem we have with God. God thinks he's God. That's the problem. And so when you pray to God in your dilemma and say, oh God, I need this, point one, point two, point three, he somehow doesn't take kindly to being a celestial Santa Claus. And he, and he somehow is wiser than us and knows better how to fulfill his purpose in your life and through you. And so when he doesn't answer your prayer in the time by which you wanted it, in the way that in which you'd wanted it, we get disappointed with God. But what it is, you have to leave things in God's hands because he's God and you're not. And he knows everything from beginning to eternity. And so Elijah is filled with self-pity and depression as a result of having false expectations of how this was going to turn out. It didn't turn out the way he expected He's offended. He feels rejected. And he's lost his confidence in God, and the focus now has become Elijah. It's about him. When God comes to him, I know this because of what he said. When God came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know what he said? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord. I, I, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, and they've thrown down your altars, and they killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take me away as well. How many of us have tried hard to do the right thing? You know, we've given money, we've served, we've done all these things. And then we expect God to respond to us in a certain way, and when he doesn't, we think the same thing. God, I've done all these things for you. What is that? What is that? And somehow God can't respond to us as, and, and, and in the way that we think he should because it would mean we're relying on our performance to gain favor with God. 
And he's a God of grace. <laughs> he loves you in spite of yourself. And that's the wonderful thing, isn't it? There's nothing I could do that's good that would cause God to love me more. And there's nothing that I could do bad that would cause God to love me less. He loves me. That's it. It's not based upon your performance. And so Elijah not being properly responded to, became, he became the issue and he's disappointed in people. How many of you invested in people and you've been disappointed in their response? Every hand could go up. I know, I know. And you've done things for people and they seem to be ungrateful in the end. And you've put yourself out there for people and somehow you've been rejected or you've been ignored. Or maybe you've had a desire to do things uh, and, and, and that's not been received and you've not had an opportunity to do what you feel like. I think I could do this. I think maybe the elders should recognize that I could do these things. But maybe they... They didn't, and somehow you say, okay, I've put myself out. I'm not going to put myself out there anymore. This, this, is, this is what Elijah did. He put himself out there. He said, I'm not going to put myself out there anymore. And so you self-isolate. It's a death trap. It's terrible. You know what's the amazing thing about all this? God sought him out. <laughs> That should make you feel pretty thrilled about the, our Lord Jesus. Because when you act like an idiot, when you act like a fool, when you become so self-absorbed and self-focused, it's not like God says, okay, I'm done with you. He tracks you down. I love the psalmist. Says, Surely goodness and mercy, goodness and mercy shall follow you. The word follow is incorrectly translated. It means pursue. Surely goodness and mercy will chase you down all the days of your life. <laughs> Even when you're in a cave and you're full of yourself, God comes, goodness and mercy comes, and he sought him out. And he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And if you're in that place of pulling back, I, it's the same question for you. What are you doing there? Don't, don't go there. I mean, Elijah's answer demonstrated his self-absorption and his disappointment in others and ultimately in God, actually. That's what happens. Well, the ultimate deal is we're mad at God because our expectation wasn't realized. Now, here's a beautiful thing. I love how God dealt with him. He didn't come and kick him in the shin. He didn't come and say, stuff like that. God did not psychoanalyze him. <laughs> he didn't mother him. And he didn't condemn him. And he didn't even respond to, in that way to the issues that Elijah was raising up because they weren't really relevant anyway. <laughs> Elijah had lost his joy but God came to him. Can I just say, if you're here today, of course you're here, right. For those of you who are remaining here, and you can identify yourself somewhat in some of this, can I just say that today, when it comes time to pray, God wants to meet you there. And he's not going to explain things to you. 
He's not going to answer all your questions. And he's not going to condemn you for being, stu- being what you've been. I was going to say stupid. That's all. I guess I did say it. He's, he's not going to condemn you. I tell you what he's going to do. He's going to restore you and point you back to the future. And that's exactly, you've got a future. There's more race to run here. This is only a chapter. This is only a, a paragraph. This was only a sentence. Where do you see the next paragraph? Where do you see the next chapter of what I have for you? Because we know that all things are working together for the good of those who love God or called according to his purpose. He wants to meet you and build in you a sense of hope for the future and have you leave whatever negativity that's caused you to self-isolate. Two thousand years ago, the angels appeared to some shepherds in Bethlehem, and they had an announcement to make. And the announcement was, because the whole place was black and in a cave, Israel was under the heavy boot of the Roman Empire, and God came there. And he made this announcement. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you news of great joy. Great joy. That will be for all people. That means you. All means all. You got it? It means you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. God himself, in the person of Jesus, invaded the blackness of this sinful earth. He came looking for you. And he wants you to know that you have a hope and that you have a future. He come to absolve you of all your sin. He comes to justify you. That means simply just as if you had never sinned. He come to give you a righteousness that's his because your righteousness is really like filthy rags. He personally gave you his own righteousness. He's not ashamed to be called your God and you his. He seats us together in heavenly places. He promises us a future on this earth and on into into your cave, into your world, into the job, into the mess of your life today, Jesus comes and he has a future and he has a hope for you. Can I ask you, what causes you to isolate, lose your joy? For Elijah, it was not being responded to by people the way he thought they should and an expectation from God that God didn't satisfy. And he was mad at people and he was mad at God. And he withdrew and he isolated. You see, disappointment causes us to isolate. Unrealized expectations causes us to isolate. Sin isolates. 
If people only knew what is in the dark closet of my heart, if they knew that, I, I got to keep that hidden. I got to isolate that. No, you don't. No, you don't. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Expose it to his light. Don't isolate. Don't do it. Elijah lost his confidence and he went into a cave. And that's what happens. That's what brings you into a cave. If you lost your confidence in God. And not one hint of discouragement in Paul's letter, Philippians 1. Not a hint of negativity. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He's living with the possibility of his imminent execution. But he remains confident. You know what he says? He says, you know, I could die here. But for me to live is Christ. And he says, if I die here, that's pretty good. Because I'm with Jesus. But if I stay here, that's pretty good. Because I know I will be a blessing to the people around me. In other words, he couldn't lose. It was win-win for Paul. What a joyous place to be. Now, I'll make a statement. I'll make it twice because I want you to drink it in a bit. I should have had it put on a slide, really. It's probably the one thing that's worth being on a slide that I'm saying here today. <laughs> but he says, the level, of, the level of our confidence in God has a dramatic impact on how joyfully we go through the difficulties of life. Amen. I'll just say it once again. The level of our confidence in God has a dramatic impact on how joyfully we go through the difficulties of life. I know. I know. I know in whom I believed. I know that all things, painful difficulty where I can't see the good in it, but I, I know this, even that, all things are working together for my good, for God's purpose. So, what troubles you? This is wrap-up time. What troubles you? What's caused you to withdraw? What causes you to isolate yourself? I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to trust. I'm not going to put my heart out there again. I'm not going to do it. What? What has made you worry and anxious to the point that you don't have joy? I lost my job. I got this diagnosis. I, what is it? Remember, it's a sentence. It's a paragraph. That's all. Jesus is here right now in this room. And he, and he really wants to meet with you. He wants to refocus you. He wants to renew, you, renew your confidence in him and your value to him. He has a plan for your life. This present moment is not the end of the story. There are several pages to go before it's the end. For me, it's a little shorter to the end. But, but we're, whatever you face, remember, it's a sentence. It's a paragraph. Maybe it's a chapter, but that's all. That it is. Let's stand. I want to pray. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are here in the house 
and you are here with us. And I pray, Lord, today will be a day when people will put themselves forward once again and say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to come out of the cave. I'm going to and receive your prayer and your ministry and receive renewal and refocus, a repurposing in Jesus' name. I pray that, Lord, for people here. Today is a turning point, and we leave this room much more joyful than when we came in. Amen. Thank you.